Welcome to episode 16 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf in downtown Thomasville, Georgia. In this episode, I'll be recapping my February reads and letting you know what should be on your nightstand this month. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, This is the monthly episode of the podcast where I recap the books I've read in the previous month. So we are finally entering March. Fingers crossed that spring is on its way. And I want to share with you the books that I read in February. So February is my birth month. Uh, My birthday is February 2nd. And I am happy to report that I spent most of the month reading books that I knew I would enjoy. So normally, because of my job running the bookstore, I try to read a wide range of fiction, nonfiction. Um, One of my New Year's resolutions was to read more diversely, so books by diverse authors, um, people that I might normally not read their perspective. And I'm hoping to continue that in March. I'm hoping to read more historical nonfiction. uh, I think Eric Larson's new book is going to be on my March to be read list. But... For February, I wanted to really enjoy what I was reading. Not to say that those books aren't enjoyable, but February, I wanted to kind of be a fun month of reading. So in January, I tackled eight books, finished eight books. And February, I kept going strong with six books, which I think is pretty good for a, for a shorter month. So let me go ahead and tell you that the first book I read or finished in February, I started it in January, but didn't finish till February, was The Smartest Kids in the World by Amanda Ripley. Ripley is a journalist. I believe she has written for Time Magazine, and she kind of put off um, reporting on education or educational issues. But she wrote this book, Smartest Kids in the World, um, focusing on the three countries who are through testing testing as the smartest kids in the world. So Finland, Poland, and South Korea. And she told their stories and how they educate their children by following three American exchange students, one in each of those countries, which I thought was a really personal or a way to make the stories more personal. So it's a nonfiction book. It's a story about education, but because she focuses on these three kids and how they experience the quote unquote smartest countries in the world, it becomes a really, not necessarily an easy read, but a really personalized story that you can kind of, if you are put off by nonfiction, I still think this, um, is readable and relatable. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for, relatable. Um, I found this book to be utterly fascinating. I don't have kids yet. I don't have an education degree, um, but I do have lots of family members who are teachers or who were teachers, and I do find the subject of education fascinating. Um, I myself went to uh, private school, uh, grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, and attended a private Christian school there. And then in college, I went to a private Christian school in Alabama. So education, public education, private education, that is interesting to me. The public-private debate, homeschooling debate, isn't really tackled in this book, and I was kind of glad. Uh, I feel like 
all the conversations that I have with my peers or people who are raising kids has to do with whether you're going to send your kid to public school or private school or homeschool them. And that debate gets really old to me. And again, maybe that's because I don't have children, but it was nice to read a book that didn't really address public schools versus private schools versus homeschools. Instead, it tackled what makes these kids in Finland, Poland, and South Korea, what enables them to test so well. Um, what are they doing in those three countries that maybe America be, could be doing better? What can we learn from them? Um, and and it even addressed things like, are they really doing the right thing? So for example, South Korea, not too surprisingly, um, based on some other things I've read and watched, um, is really intense when it comes to educating their children. And so are those things that we really want to replicate here in America or are those things we need to temper before we bring them here? So this is an eye-opening look at educational systems, at what different countries are doing and what we could potentially be doing better here in America. Um, What the students, what the three students who Ripley follows, what they learn is really eye-opening. And I learned a lot about educational systems and I thought it was interesting that in America, um, the emphasis really seems to be on technology in schools. So I have a younger brother who teaches at a large private school, um, college preparatory school in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of their philosophies is to make sure an iPad or an iMac is in every kid's hands and, and bringing technology into the classroom, which my brother, who is kind of a Luddite, um, finds, you know, somewhat irritating. I think he abides by those things and tries to use technology in his classroom, but he finds it difficult. And I think it's interesting that in Poland, Finland, and South Korea, technology really isn't emphasized in the classroom. Um, These are also countries that don't have sports or recess or after-school activities. Yes, kids play sports, but it's not associated with their schools. Um, Coaches don't teach school. Um, They coach in club club settings. Um, The teachers are teachers. And I I just found it all to be really interesting and wondered what ways we could be bringing that back to the state. So if you are an educator or a parent, I think The Smartest Kids in the World is really a must read. I would have loved to have read this school in a classroom setting where I could discuss it with peers or with other educators. So if you are a teacher or a department chair um, or if you've got any bit of influence in your school, so maybe you're a headmaster or a principal, this is really an interesting book. Um, so it's not too long. I think anybody can read it, even if you're not an educator or a parent. I'm neither of those things, and I found it fascinating. Um, the book is The Smartest Kids in the World by Amanda Ripley, and I highly recommend it. Um, if It's a conversational, informative book. And one of my, the thing that I realized when I finished it was I felt like I had just watched a really well done documentary. So if you are a fan of documentaries on Netflix, Jordan and I watch those all the time. Um, This book read like that to me. It read like a really well put together uh, documentary. So I think you'll, I think you could, if that appeals to you, I think you'll enjoy this book. Um, The next book that I read is one that I discussed in a previous podcast with uh, my fellow bookseller, Sydney Webb. Um, The book was Bone Appetempt by Amelia Morris. Um, This was a selection for my new book club that I'm helping to get started here in Thomasville. I'm thrilled to report that we had our first meeting a couple of weeks ago and it went really well. Uh, I'm excited to see where that book club takes me and what books I'm able to read because of the book club. 
um, and what new faces I'm, I'm hoping to get to know better here in Thomasville. So, um, wish me luck of the book club here is a new endeavor, but I'm happy to report that, uh, we had our first meeting and it went really well. That meeting, um, was, um, hosted here at my house and we read Bone Appetit. This is a book by, um, blogger and Bone Appetit writer, Amelia Morris. I had not previously heard of Amelia Morris. I actually came across this book on my Instagram feed. So one of my Instagram friends had posted a picture of this book and I really put it on the potential book club reads list because it was beautiful. If you haven't seen it, you really need to Google it. It's a beautiful book cover. Um, maybe I'll put a picture of it in the show notes. Um, but the cover kind of sold me. So I put it in our book club. How um, we choose books is the hostess puts out three choices, everybody votes, and then the winner is the book that we'll read for the month that kind of prevents people from getting frustrated with the book um, or with the with the hostess who picks the book. So the winner of all of the votes or most of the votes this month was Bone Up Attempt or last month was Bone Up Attempt. Sydney and I really went into detail a couple of podcasts ago, so I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes if you haven't listened to that episode yet. I won't go into too much more detail here except to say really what Bon Appetit boils down to is if you read or are a fan of Amelia Morris's blog, then you will probably love Bon Appetit. If you are not a follower of Amelia Morris's blog, you might be a little lost at first. It might take you some time to get into the book. Um, it is a coming of age story. There are recipes mixed in throughout the book. Um, it's a food memoir, but I'm not even, I mean, it definitely is a food memoir, but I have enjoyed so many food memoirs before. Molly Weisenberg, Shauna Nequist, these are um, some people who I have loved their their food books, their food memoirs. A Sweet Life in Paris comes to mind. Um, this is a little different from that. To me and to most members of the book club, when we discussed it last week, um, the highlights of this book have to do with the author's um, romance with her husband and meeting her husband. And and that read really well and was written really well. Um, the food stuff kind of fell a little flat to me, but I would love to know other opinions because books are so subjective. And um, especially a book like this, I think I went into it kind of blind and that hurt me instead of helped me. I think it would have been better if I had already been a fan of Amelia's blog if I had already been familiar with the concept of her blog. Um, so if you are an Amelia Morris fan or if you read this book and loved it, I would love to hear from you. One, we did have one book club member who really did love this book. And um, she mentioned part of the reason she loved it was she grew up in Pittsburgh and a great portion of the book takes place in Pittsburgh. And so she really felt a sense of place with this book. Um, so I think you could really enjoy this book. It just was one that felt a little flat to me, but again, I think that's because of the lack of knowledge I had going into it. So Bon Appetit is a memoir by Amelia Morris. It's a new release, released last month, beautiful cover, and it does have some really good recipes in it. So it might be one you should have for the shelf just because it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's going to look good on your shelf and you might be able to use some of those recipes. And again, if you're a fan of her blog or of other bloggers turned writers, you might be, you might enjoy this book. If you liked, um, Julie and Julia, uh, this book could be for you. 
Next, I read In Every Way by Nick Brown. This was an, ad- an advanced reader copy that had been sitting on my nightstand for a couple of months. And by the time I finally got to it, it was already published. So In Every Way released last month, released in February. Um, it is a fiction book by Nick Brown. And I really enjoyed this book. Um, in fact, I haven't heard a lot about it in the book publishing world, so I haven't seen things come across my email from publishing companies or from the Indie Next list. Um, And so I really want to champion this book because I think it's really well done. Um, It is a novel. uh, The main character is 19-year-old Maria, who uh, unexpectedly unexpectedly finds herself pregnant with kind of a deadbeat um, love interest. Um, The... um, baby's daddy, (laughs) the baby daddy, I guess, in this book, is um, less than stellar. And so he kind of leaves the picture pretty early on. Um, But in addition to finding herself uh, pregnant at 19, her mother is dying of cancer. And so the book kind of starts out um, sad. And And it's not necessarily a super uplifting, fun, this is not a fun, happy book. Um, but it is really well written. And I think part of the reason I loved it was the book takes place in North and South Carolina. So Maria starts the book in North Carolina. She's with her mom. She's, um, she's decided, um, to have this baby and to give the baby up for adoption. And you kind of, Nick Brown does a really great job of bringing that pain to the surface and that confusion. And should I have this baby? And, and the struggle there of, of what should I do? And she winds up giving the baby up for adoption to a couple who live in, um, and now I'm going to regret not Googling this in advance. I believe it's Beaufort, South Carolina, but now I'm worried it might be Beaufort. Um, so I am so sorry, South Carolinians. I do not know the pronunciation of that city, but I've heard about the gorgeous, um, coastal town of Beaufort, Beaufort. And that is where the majority of this book takes place. And I love the depictions of North and South Carolina. I think um, Brown has done an incredibly good job of writing the South, which I actually think is a really difficult task. Um, So that's part of the reason I love this book. I loved the setting of the book, and I loved the descriptions of the setting. I felt like he really brought a sense of place to this novel. Um, So Maria gives her baby up for adoption. That's not a spoiler. That happens really early on. And we discover that she has given her baby up um, for adoption to this couple. She doesn't know this couple, but unbeknownst to the adoption agency and unbeknownst to her own mother, she does recognize this couple from her own growing up years spent summering in, um, in this coastal town in South Carolina. So when her mother's cancer becomes worse, Maria, who has already given up her baby for adoption, decides it would be good for them to move to um, South Carolina, to Beaufort, South Carolina, for the summer. And they, she and her mother move to this sleepy coastal town, and there is a series of events that leads Maria to ultimately finding and befriending the parents of the baby she has given up for adoption. So the plot ensues from there. It's kind of a chaotic... Um, mess. It could easily have turned into a bizarre lifetime movie book. Uh, the plot, if I, if you read the back of the book, the plot sounds like a lifetime movie. I think that's why it wound up on my nightstand for so long, but that's a shame because 
I really thought this was a well-written, interesting book. Um, for those of you about to embark on spring break, lucky you, this book should be on your list. It should be in your beach bag. I think it's a really uh, quick read because it's a page turner. You want to find out what's going to happen to Maria and to her mother and to her baby. Um, but it's also incredibly well written. So this is a page turner, but it's a quiet book. They're not, you know, these huge events, um, even when they happen, they happen quietly. And the descriptions of these southern towns are really spot on. And I did read this and wondered if Maria, the main character, would ever have her happy ending. And I'm not going to spoil anything for you, um, except to say I think this is a redemptive book, but not necessarily a happy one. I think it's just a realistic look at a somewhat unrealistic sounding situation. So the book is In Every Way by Nick Brown. This isn't one I've heard too much about and I think that's uh, really a shame. So I hope you will pick this one up either at your library or at your local bookseller. Uh, I think this one is worth reading. And it was, it was I, I had a few favorites of the month. Like I said, I read mostly books I knew I would enjoy in February, but this was one that I that might make my favorites list. I really had a good time with it. Um, another book I read this month, and this book truly was my favorite, I think, of the month, Unbecoming by Rebecca Sherm. This is another new release, came out last month, and didn't hear too much about it, um, but slowly I'm seeing reviews trickle in, and I'm relieved to say that they are just as wonderful as the review I had of this book. It is fantastic. Um, Unbecoming combines Bonnie and Clyde with the art forger. That's kind of my uh, takeaway. That's my spin on it. Um, I did a 10 second book review for the store. So we do 10 second book reviews on our Instagram account. And this was my review a couple of weeks ago. And that was kind of my tagline. This is Bonnie and Clyde meets the art forger. Um, this is an ambitious debut novel. So Rebecca Sherm, this is her first book. And if it's any indication of her talent, I cannot wait to see what she writes next. Um, this is a suspense book, a mystery book, a romance book. Um, all, all of the above are kind of mixed and mingled together. Uh, so the book navigates three different worlds. And again, maybe that's something that it has in common with Nick Brown's book, um, which covered the North and South Carolina cities. This book starts in Garland, Tennessee, a tiny little southern town. Then you are swept away into New York City and the young art scene there, and then the city of Paris. And it follows um, Grace, our main character, who calls herself Julie. And so she's living in Paris, and you realize she's not telling people her real name or the real history of her life. Instead, she's kind of made up a few things to to pass her off as um as Julie, living in Paris and working um, as a a restorer, a restorationist of, of art and of jewelry. So she works um, in a tiny uh, Parisian, you know, warehouse kind of situation. But every day she reads her local hometown newspaper on the internet. So she reads the news from Garland, Tennessee. And you realize the reason she's doing that is she's trying to find out if her two uh, friends have been released from prison yet for a heist that they did 
more or less with her help. And so you kind of realize she's on the run and these two guys got sent to prison, but she didn't. And so that is where the plot starts. That's all I'm going to tell you about the plot of this book because I went into it not knowing too much. And I think that's the best way to read this book. Um, the, there are, like I said, elements of mystery and suspense. I think Gillian Flynn wrote a review for the back of this book. Um, maybe ton of French. And so those reviews were kind of what made me grab it off the shelf. It definitely is a suspense mystery story, but it's also just a really well-written character-driven novel. Um, Sherm also does a great job, like I said, of portraying these three very distinct places in the book. And they kind of, um, set the tone for each chapter. Um, I loved this book. I can't really rave about it enough. I think it's really well written. I think it's worth owning. Um, though if you're a library girl, I totally understand the library guy or girl, go ahead and check it out from the library, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a wait list. Um, this is a really good book that needs to be on your shelf. Again, I think it'd be fun to read over spring break because it's fast, fast paced. Um, you'll, you'll read it very quickly. Um, take this one with you on vacation. Um, prepare to stay up. I think I stayed up till 2am reading this one. So it's just really a really good book. Um, Unbecoming by Rebecca Sherm. Next, I read Funny Girl by Nick Hornby. I am a huge Nick Hornby fan, so I've got a guy friend who loathes Nick Hornby and can't stand him. Well, I'm not going to recommend this book to him because this is a Nick Hornby book, so if you like Nick Hornby, this will be great. Um, if you're unfamiliar with him, he has written several books. He's um, a British writer. Uh, he wrote High Fidelity, which you may have seen the film adaptation of. He also wrote About a Boy, um, which now is a... Um, TV show, which I also enjoy, but, um, Funny Girl is his newest novel, um, released last month. I read a lot of new releases in February, books that I was, um, that it reminded me of what I used to be like before I owned a bookstore. So these are books that I would buy, um, if I didn't own a bookstore and have to read a wide variety of things. So Funny Girl by Nick Hornby, um, he writes these quirky British comedies, I actually think this is one of his smartest novels. Like I said, I really like most of what I've read of him. Um, but this one in particular felt really smart. It kind of is a critique of television and television culture, pop culture. It takes place in 1960s London. Um, and one thing I love that I didn't mention in some of my written reviews is that each section of the book follows the series in a television show. So Funny Girl, um, the main character of Funny Girl is Sophie Straw. She's an aspiring comedic actress. She wants to be the next Lucille Ball. And um, early in the novel, she becomes a star of this new te British television show. And Nick sets up the book where each section is like series one, series two, series three. So you follow Sophie and her other, her ensemble cast, um, the book's ensemble cast, I guess I should say, um, through the years as they continue this television show. Sophie Straw is the main character, but, and, and I loved her. I thought she's the, she knows she's who the title funny girl comes from, but the book to me has so many other fascinating, funny characters. Um, there are the writers of the television show and then Sophie's co-star. Um, all three of those men 
round out the book. And the book wouldn't be complete without this ensemble cast. So the characters are hysterical. They're witty, biting, sarcastic. Um, And then you also get this inside look at this debate that I think we talk about in our modern culture all the time, whether television should be for education or entertainment. And I feel like that debate comes up a lot in reading as well. You know, what makes a good book? Is it a good book It just because you fly through it? Um, you know, is Fifty Shades of Grey a good book just because it sold millions of copies? You know, I am a Fifty Shades of Grey snob. I haven't read that book. I'm not going to read that book just for a lot of reasons. Um, but I have customers who love that book. And I've had people ask me, well, do you sell Fifty Shades of Grey? Well, of course I sell it because people buy it. And there is, um, there are readers who want to read that kind of book. And, and it's just an interesting debate. Do you read or watch television or do you embrace culture because it's educational or because it's entertaining or because it's both? And so this book, though it's a fictional, a totally fictional story, you'll find yourself asking those questions. I'd actually think this might make a good book club book for that reason. I think you could have a really great discussion around um, TV and pop culture and TV writing. I um, I like TV. I have a lot of shows that I watch and I enjoy. And I think my dream job, if I hadn't already gotten my dream job as a bookseller, as a bookstore owner, would be to be a television writer. I have no qualifications for that Um I was not, I mean, I was a journalism major in undergrad, but I have no expertise in television writing, but I think that would be such a fun job. And this book kind of gives you a behind the scenes look at that. Um, Again, even though it's entirely fictional, if you are a fan of TV or pop culture or of Nick Hornby, um, this, this book is so good. Um, So Unbecoming and Funny Girl were probably my favorite books of the month. I'm so glad I read them during February, which is a happy month for me. It's it's my birthday month. I love celebrating all month long. And I felt like I was continuing the celebration by reading these two really great books. Um, So again, this book was Funny Girl by Nick Hornby. All right, and the last book I read this month, and actually I just finished it on March 1st, so I barely hit the deadline, uh, How to Be a Heroine by Samantha Ellis. I came across this book when I was trying to restack our classic section, so if you are ever curious as to what sections sell best at the bookshelf in Thomasville, Georgia, um, our fiction section and our historical nonfiction, those are really popular sections of our shop. But our classic section, we can never keep enough classic books in stock. And that's something I've recently noticed. And so I'm trying to stay on top of it. And so I went to Penguin Random House website to kind of scroll through all of their beautiful, you've seen them, all their Penguin classics, they're beautiful. And so I knew I needed to restock those. And lo and behold, somehow this book was also on that website. Um, This is not a classic book book, but it was written kind of in homage to the classics. So Samantha Ellis is a theater writer, um, I believe, um, yes, a British uh, theater writer, and she loves the classic heroines of her childhood. So the books she read as a child or as a young adult, uh, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, And she wanted to revisit those heroines and figure out if they meant the same thing to her now that she was an adult. It's a, it's a, I say fascinating all the time. I'm realizing the words that I reuse when I'm alone on this podcast. Um, It is an incredibly well-written, 
And yes, fascinating concept. It's a concept I wish I had come up with because I think about this all the time. One of my favorite books, I've mentioned it on this podcast before, is An Old Fashioned Girl by Louise May Alcott. Uh, I love that book and I read it frequently for comfort. But if I were to read it with a critical eye, I don't know that it would really hold up. Um, and by critical eye, I mean the way that Samantha read, reread her favorite novels. So she reread her favorite novels with really a feminist perspective. So if you've taken literary criticism courses, she is reading all of these books with kind of that feminist lens. I loved this book because I love the concept of going back and rereading these books from our childhood and finding out, do our favorite heroines still hold up? Um, so she covers, like I said, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre. Uh, I loved that she, my favorite chapter was probably Anne of Green Gables because I love Anne Shirley. But who I really love is Emily, who no one ever talks about. So Ellen uh, Montgomery wrote a trilogy of books um, called Emily of New Moon, Emily Climbs, and Emily's Quest, I believe are the three titles. And they are fantastic books that no one ever talks about. I love Anne Shirley, and I have read, I believe, all eight or ten of the novels in the Anne books. Um, the first three are probably the best. I, you know, I don't know that she really needed to write ten books about Anne in her life, but um, I love Anne Shirley, but I love Emily maybe even more. And it was so fun to see her, to see this author. Samantha Ellis discover Emily. And so Anne, she struggled with, I think, as an adult. I think Anne has some flaws. We all have flaws, but I think she she didn't understand kind of why Anne gave up her writing career. And again, she was reading these, she was rereading these books with kind of a feminist um, perspective, a, a feminist worldview. And um, but then she discovers Emily, and, and I loved reading someone discovering Emily because I, I love those books as well. Um, the other favorite section of the book, the favorite chapter of the book was her discussion of Pride and Prejudice and Elizabeth Bennet. And spoiler alert, you will all be pleased to know that Elizabeth Bennet does hold up over the years. So I don't think that's a surprise to those of us who love that book. But anyway, Samantha Ellis does a fantastic job of taking each of these books. So each chapter in her book is devoted to one of these characters, one of these heroines. And then she also weaves in her own story, which brought in another element. So this isn't strictly just a look back at classic heroines, although that's what much of the book is. Um, Samantha also weaves in her own story of growing up in England as an Iraqi Jew and what that identity meant to her and her own struggles with faith and with being very different and trying to find her place in the world and how these heroines helped her grow up. And now that she's, I believe, 37, she's looking back and wanting to see, you know, who will she read next and what heroine will help her through this next stage of life. It's incredibly well done. Um, if you, I took a literary criticism class in college and I so wish this book had been written back then because I think this would make a great college, not, necess not necessarily a textbook, but um, an additional uh, um, outside, worth outside reading for, uh, for a course like literary criticism. Um, we have filed this particular book on our classics shelf because I think those people who love the classics will enjoy this look at them. Um, but it's really a literary criticism book. Um, and a, 
and a nonfiction, I guess a memoir as well, because like I said, Samantha has beautifully tied in her own story to the heroine stories. Um, I, you know, there were things I didn't like about this book, but those were solely personal. So, um, a couple of times I found myself disagreeing with her take on these characters, but I haven't reread these books. Like she has read that reread them. I've mostly left them in childhood. Um, so perhaps my opinion would change if I were to reread them. There were also a couple of chapters that I had a hard time reading because I hadn't read the books that she was referencing. So one of her chapters was about the Valley of the Dolls, which is a book I've never read. Um, and so that chapter wasn't as appealing to me because I had nothing invested in that book. You know, the chapters about Pride and Prejudice and Little Women and Anne of Green Gables, of course I was going to love those chapters because I'm very familiar with those works. The chapters I didn't enjoy as much or I had a harder time getting through, that's solely because I hadn't read those books. So anyway, this is one I'm going to be recommending to a lot of folks, a lot of readers. This is a reader's book. So this is a book for people who love literature, who love to read. This is a book lover's book. Um, again, it's called How to Be a Heroine uh, by Samantha Ellis. I think the subtitle is What a Lifetime of Reading Has Taught Me, and I think that's a really lovely way of putting it. This is um, this is a great book. I'm really glad I read it, and I'm really glad I read it in February. Um, again, a really fun way to kind of close out my birthday month. So those are the six books I read in February. I think I read a lot of really good books that would be worth your while. I hope my reviews are somewhat helpful to you as you navigate your bookstores and your libraries and you're trying to figure out what to add to your list next. Um, if you have anything to add to this conversation, I would love to hear from you. We are on um, Facebook under Bookshelf Thomasville. We have our website where all of our podcasts and show notes are posted, www.bookshelfthomasville.com. And then perhaps the quickest, easiest way to contact us is through social media. We are on Twitter at bookshelftville, T-V-I-L-L-E, and on Instagram under the same um, same tag, uh, bookshelftville. So we would love to hear from you. I'd love to get some of your feedback on these books if you've read them or if you plan on reading them. It's always fun to discuss with fellow readers what books have been on their nightstand this month. Um, Thanks so much, and we will see you next time.